at the end of 40 frustrating, drama-filled years of wandering about the Sinai Peninsula and that space between Egypt and Palestine. <clears throat> we find Moses. <clears throat> we find Moses and the children of Israel at the very threshold of the promised land. Before Moses stood a generation that had not seen some of the events regarding the exodus from Egypt. They had not been there at Sinai, Horeb, when the Ten Commandments were given. <clears throat> and so the book of Deuteronomy opens with an elongated speech. In fact, most of Deuteronomy is the elongated speech. Probably took days to deliver. I think we probably have his outline. We probably have Moses' notes. As he recounted how they got to where they are, and as they looked across Jordan to where they were going, the place where Moses, because of his failures, had been forbidden to enter. After all that he had done for God, after all that he had done for the people, he was denied entry for his faithlessness. There at the foot of the mountain, Moses began his word. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. What? Let me read that again. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. It took them 40 years to make that 11-day journey. No wonder the Hebrew writer says, don't be like Israel who failed to enter into their rest, into that promised land because of their lack of faith. They were, they were sent to wander in the wilderness because of their disobedience, because of their faithlessness. Their 11-day journey became a 40-year ordeal so that we would have a new generation to enter into the promised land. 
Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashataroth, and Edrei. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. He basically recounted to them the story that is recorded for us in Exodus and some in Numbers and a little bit in Leviticus. Leviticus is mostly legal stuff. Numbers has a lot of numbers as they did a census. But there are stories throughout to tell of the dealings of God with Moses and the people of Israel. From the time that Moses was rescued supernaturally from the curse of all the male children born of Israel in captivity up until the point where they left on the heels of ten plagues, were taken, led to Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, had one of their first great fails there as Aaron and the people created a golden calf to worship since Moses has been gone so long and he's up there in that cloud of thunder and lightning or whatever's going on up there. Maybe he won't even be back. On through their wandering, their conflicts, their battles, their, their worry over food, God supernaturally providing manna in the wilderness, which they described as something tasty when they first got it. And in the end, they were complaining because it tasted kind of like, I forget what they said, but it's just some tacky thing. He said, we want meat. God says, you want meat? All right, I'll give you meat. And literally, it says, I'll give you meat. You're going to have so much meat, it's going to be coming out your noses. It's in the Old Testament. So he gave them quail. On and on. No, you don't got any water. Go hit the rock and get some water. On and on and on. Clouds moving, time to go. We know that story. We've listened to it in Sunday school from time immemorial. And here they are. Then I'm not going to go through all of it because there's a lot of chapters of Deuteronomy, but pop over to chapter 4. <clears throat> He says, so watch yourselves carefully. He's talking about getting ready to go here into the new land. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, a likeness of male or female. He says, remember Horeb. You didn't see God. He didn't show up like that nice old man with a white beard that's in all the paintings. He spoke out of the fire. And, and God, I think he gives us a hint here. Because he knows what man will do if he sees a form. He's going to memorialize. We memorialize the form even though we've never seen the form. And it, be, and it, becomes, all, it becomes an icon, almost an idol. So, so he says, no, don't, don't do that. So don't even try to make a craven image. 
And he goes on, the likeness of any animal that's on earth or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. If you've ever looked at some of the idols of the cultures of, through history, all of these things show up at some point. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people of his own possession today. He's trying to get them to think above and beyond what the folks around them were caught up in. He wants them to understand the uniqueness of the relationship that they have. He is El Elyon, God Most High, the one and only. And he, he will not tolerate anything other than that. He's making it extremely clear. But even from the beginning, it's a call to faith. You didn't see me. You heard me, but you didn't see me. That takes faith. We can only see God with the eye of faith. I'm not talking about the eye of imagination, because each of us may have a particular vision of what God looks like to us. I think, I think it's the hand of God that kept us from having someone preserve an accurate depiction of Jesus. Because you know what would happen. I mean, we find a cloth that they think maybe was wrapped around him in the tomb, and it's a holy object to be worshipped. What would happen if Mark happened to be a painter, too, and illustrated his gospel? Here's what Jesus looked like. What do you suppose the cathedral surrounding that painting would look like? Save us. Save us. Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. That's what occasions Jesus saying the thing about the rocks crying out. It was the children saying, Hosanna, 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 because they had just seen the triumphal entry the day before. And the, and the stuffy old elders were saying, get them to stop. And Jesus said, mm-mm. If I stop them, the very rocks will cry out. <laughs> so he leads them through all of this, and he gets to six. And that very famous famous statement becomes one of the main prayers of Israel even today. Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. If you were Jewish, you'd know exactly what I said, even though you wouldn't speak Hebrew. Only you also would have thrown something at me because I said Yahweh instead of Adonai. The text says Yahweh. That's God's name. They refused to say it. Um, I, even got, I even got schooled by my Jewish friend when I tried to be cool and offer a blessing from Adonai to him. He says, we don't say Adonai. I said, well, what do you say now? And he would say, Hashem, the name. They don't, they, don't, they don't even say Adonai anymore. 
for fear of taking God's name in vain. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Could go on. We won't do that. It just sounds cool in Hebrew, doesn't it? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Which, of course, turned into a, a literal thing as they created phylacteries to tie on their hands and their foreheads and mount them on the doorposts of the house. That's not what Moses was talking about. He was talking about having the word so interwoven in the warp and woof of life that the word and you become almost indecipherable. You can't, can't tell what's what in your heart. What if he'd said carve it in your forehead? That'd be an awful mess. It shall come about by the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will come about. You shall fear only the Lord. He says in verse 12, Then watch yourself. You do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I know something about your family here. As soon as it gets tough, forget the Lord. Uh, you know what? It wasn't that bad when we were slaves in Egypt. At least we knew where the next meal was coming from. You really want to go back? You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods and other gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. He'll wipe you off the face of the earth. You see, that's, that's part of the covenant too. Don't even entertain them. In fact, he went on to say, he went on to say, drive out the Canaanites before you. Drive them out. Tear down the idols. Destroy the temples. Do not leave a stone on top of another stone. Cut down the Asherah poles. Knock over the Baals. They must be utterly destroyed, annihilated, wiped out. Why? Why? Is this God of the Old Testament just a big grumpy guy? Didn't he have any grace for those Canaanites? God's purposes operate on a level that we can hardly comprehend. In everything, even down to the personal details of our lives. We think we know what's best. We seldom do. 
So he said, this is the story. This is what's going to happen. When Joshua took the reins right at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses went up on the mountain and died, Joshua repeated that command. We're going to wipe them out. We're, going to, we're throwing them away. We're not going to leave a vestige of the pagan idolatry. The Canaanite gods were so many. Just for fun, I asked Uncle Google about Canaanite gods. <clears throat> and he produced for me a list. Anath, virgin goddess of war and strife. Mate and sister of Baal Chadad. Ashira, or sometimes called Atherat, the walker of the sea, the mother goddess, wife of El, um, sometimes got syncretized, was called the wife of God, the Yahweh God. Astarte, uh, an, an androgynous divinity associated with Venus, and uh, mostly a she, and it's all about sex. Baalath, or Baalith, um, another wife of of Baal, Baal Chadad, the storm god who superseded El as head of their pantheon, Baal Hamon, god of fertility and renewer of all energies, Dagon, or Dagon, as Johnny likes to say, god of crop fertility, sometimes described as the father of Hadad, Eshmun, or Baalach Asclepius, the god of healing, the Kathirath, the goddesses of marriage and pregnancy, Kothar Chassis, the skilled god of craftsmanship. Lothan, who is the servant and the ally of the evil Yam. <clears throat> Yam, also called Yam Nahar, meaning the judge Nahar. Kind of a very satanic sort of a guy. Um, Melkart, the king of the city. Molech, the god of fire, best known for receiving uh, infant uh, sacrifices. Moth, the god of death. Nikal, goddess of the orchards. Uh, Kadashtu, with a holy one, the goddess of love. Rashef, god of plague. Shalim and Shachar, Shamayim, Shapash, Shemesh, Yarich, the lover of Nichal. Got to clean up the spit up here. They were, these are just the ones the archaeologists have come across. And mostly they were about power, sexuality, fertility, fear. And the worship of them generally involved things that the flesh would enjoy, were destructive to the spirit. I remember as a child, I'd read about the, the I'd, I'd read about these these pagan gods and the Israelites. They'd seek God, divide the waters, and you know all the cool stuff that God had done. And then they'd turn to the Baals and the Asherahs, and I was like, like, uh, how come? Why would they do that? As a little kid, nobody would explain to me. It had something to do with things like temple prostitutes and the and the uh, secret services that were really orgies. It was very flesh, fleshy, a lot of gluttony, a lot of, a lot of drunkenness. That was the attraction. But beyond that, there was this, there was this, 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 this tendency to go to these specialized gods when your God was quiet 
and wasn't producing what you asked for. I asked for a great crop, and I didn't have a great crop this year. Maybe Baal could help me. My wife is not getting pregnant. Maybe I need to go talk to uh, Ashtara or whichever one it was. It's about in charge of pregnancies. This, that, the other thing. I feel powerless. I feel God's not giving me what I want, so maybe I'll check out one of these other gods. Now, here's a challenge. <clears throat> I, look at, I look at the Israelites, and not very hard to fill myself up with some self-righteousness and say, boy, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. I, I wouldn't have done that. I know better. I'm, I'm smarter. Sort of like when you, it's sort of like when you're reading about Jesus and the disciples and somebody says something really dumb and you just go, oh, man, Jesus must have, must have done his own face palm at that point. You know, thinking, like, I wouldn't have asked that stupid question. Really. I ask stupid questions all the time, and I have the New Testament to read. I get it wrong more times than I get it right. So... It's always a challenge whenever we read something in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and we want to apply it to life in the church, in the New Covenant. Listen carefully. If you take nothing else home today, this one. You have to interpret every word of the Old Testament in the shadow of the cross of Christ. If you don't, you will make a mistake. Because if you drag the precepts and principles, the laws and regulations of the Old Testament directly into the New Testament without passing them under the cross of Jesus Christ, you're going to end up being a legalist. And you'll end up trying to justify yourself by keeping commandments. And you will try to get God's, God's love and, and approval through deeds and works. And if you turn to the law, if you turn to regulation, if you turn to trying to do something to earn God's love, to earn salvation, you are in more trouble than we like to talk about in church today. Because in Galatians, he says, if you rely on the law, you have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Fallen from grace? We don't like that. We have so many Reformed theologians in the world today. We don't like that phrase. Well, that, they, they get around it, you know, you never really were in grace. You've fallen short of it. You didn't get there. Something, I don't know. It says fallen from grace. That's what the Word says. That's what Paul wrote. You can't have law and grace at the same time as your standard. Oil and water. So, be careful when you read the Old Testament. 
Be careful how you bring the principles of the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, it's still Scripture. It's still the Word of God, and His eternal truths never waver. That's why not one dot of the I, not one seraph on the letter will pass from the law before heaven and earth pass away. Who said that? Jesus. I tend to accept things Jesus said. But the difference is the impact of the law on you and me. It does not save us. It has been relegated to a series of idiot lights on our dashboard to let us know just what needs repair. It's the standard by which we are measured in our success of obedience or failure thereof. And it, by golly, is the great big fuel gauge that shows me how much grace I need. Because when it comes to the law, my needle's pointing pretty close to E. But when it comes to grace, that needle is bent against the post on the full side. The biggest understatement in the New Testament is, my grace is sufficient for you. The greatest understatement in the New Testament is, my grace is sufficient for you. That would be like God saying, nah, there's enough water in the ocean. <laughs> now, having said that, what's up with this idol business? What's up with this idol business in the Old Testament? What's going on here with the people of the covenant living among the Canaanites. So we get through Joshua, and then we get to Judges. <clears throat> Here's how Judges opens up. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side. And their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim. That's just Hebrew for weepers. Everybody was weeping. They had something to weep about. They had forfeited something. God keeps his covenant. The good part in the not-so-good part. It's impossible for God to lie. The Hebrew writer reminds us of that. You did not drive out the idolaters, and now their gods are a snare to you. A snare. What's a snare? We have some, we have some outdoorsmen among us. 
I'm sure that you know what a snare is. What's a snare? It's a trap. What are some things a snare always has? Bait? I mean, because there's different kinds of snares, right? Right? Okay. I remember when I was a little kid, I thought the only kind of snare was the one that was always in the, in the cartoons where you step in the, in the noose and it pulls you up and hangs you upside down. That's what I thought a snare was. But what, what are the characteristics of a snare? What? Still not hearing it. There's a trigger. Something to immobilize, a trap to hold you. It's concealment. All of these things are part of a snare. I'm glad no drummers answered. They have a whole other word when it comes to a snare. Yeah, I mean, what is that all about? They sit behind a trap set and they play with a snare. I... <clears throat> so, <laughs> back into the subject here. I was only speaking in symbols. Uh, uh-huh. uh, don't ride me. <clears throat> Tom, Tom, what do you... Th- Never mind. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. The beat goes on. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no. <laughs> I'd rather have them asking for more. Better, better have them asking for more than throwing things. Um, a snare. It's concealed. You don't see it. You don't, the victim doesn't see it. Otherwise, you'd avoid it. And there's something to entice you there. It's bait. And there's a trigger. Oh, you want to know what the Greek word for trigger is? Skandalon. The word we get scandal from. And the word is translated usually in the New Testament as stumbling block. It says don't be a stumbling block. It says you don't be the trigger on that trap for your brother. Now, here we are, the people of God enjoying His grace under this new covenant that changes all of the rules. And we're living in that odd place between the now and the not yet. We are now the children of God. But it hasn't been revealed what we will be. We have eternal life, but we are going to die before being resurrected, never to die again. We're in between. Christ has come to save the world, but the world's not all saved. It's like the difference between V-Day when they invaded Normandy and it was done. The war was over, but it took a couple of years until E-Day, V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day, when they finally mopped up the enemy. We're in the mop-up part right now. God has launched an invasion in the form of Jesus Christ and at the cross defeated sin, Satan, death, and hell once and for all. We're just fighting the insurgency. 
until the very end. And so we are living among the Canaanites. We are living with the Canaanites. And all of their gods, all of their altars, all of the things they sell their souls to acquire, it's around us everywhere. We're not just among them, we're, we're with them. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me to admit is that I see just across the, the nation using generic terms, I see very little difference inside and outside the church. I don't see much difference in, in, in whatever rate you're going to go by, whatever statistic you're going to look at. I don't see that much difference inside the church than outside the church. What's happened? What's going on? Is it possible that we have been snared by the gods of the Canaanites that we live among? I, I feel it every day. It pulls at me. It calls to me. Turn to something besides God to fix my problems. Turn to something besides my father to find my validation. Turn to something besides the eternal in order to have some temporary joy, quote unquote, some happiness in this world. Everything that draws us away from him, everything that takes more of our time, our money, our effort, our conscious being has become an idol in our lives and we are sacrificing our relationship with Jesus to serve other gods. We've got to understand that in the new covenant that that the things that we don't go to church, we are the church. Yeah. I whispered to several people this morning, what does this mean in the new covenant? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Where's that temple? Have you been there lately? Can you give me an address? Can you give me directions so I can go to the temple and find this God who's in there so I can be silent before him? No. No, in the New Testament, the, the brick-and-mortar temple has been replaced by you, individually and collectively, in two different passages. Use the singular, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in plural, you, y'all, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All y'all. So what does that mean? Maybe it's more like, be still and know that I am God. Maybe it is, let all that is worldly within me keep silence because the Lord is in his holy temple. We feel far from God. I would love for somebody to raise their hand and say, I have never felt distance from God since I accepted Jesus. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's common. I remember, I remember a bumper sticker I saw when I was in college. It said, feel far from God? Guess who moved? You know, there's, and it was cute, but it's not true. Jesus said, I will never leave you 
nor forsake you. Does that mean if you sin, then he's with you? He doesn't leave. Even if you chronically sin, even if you say something nasty or ignore him, does he leave you? Not if he's telling the truth. And I mentioned earlier, <laughs> I tend to accept the things Jesus said as truth. <laughs> you see? Now, think about this. When you sin, you're dragging Jesus with you. When Paul was talking about you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit, when I grew up, that was all about not drinking and smoking. Your body's a temple, you know. Don't be drinking and smoking. Because Paul said, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you go into 1 Corinthians and read what he's talking about, he actually was talking about frequenting the temple prostitutes. He says, what part does Christ have with prostitution? Hey, Jesus, come here, look at this. You ever seen anything like that before? Ain't she some? Ain't he hot? Come on, Jesus, take a look. I don't want to look at that. Look at it. What part does Jesus have with that stuff that attracts us and pulls us? And the snare closes. I've worked with a lot of guys trying to get free from pornography, and it closes tight. When the tooth, it closes tight. That snare closes tight. It's hard to get free. And, and that's just one of thousands of sins that we drag him into. Because he's not going to leave. He's not going to leave. Oh, what love. When you're with somebody that's doing something that you don't approve of, you just, I'm out of here. I don't even want to be part of it. He's not that way. We could go down the same road. We could talk about money and greed. I work, I work with some marvelous Christians who deliver health care and get paid very, very, very well for it. And I watch the snare of materialism grasp them every day. And I find millionaires who live in fear that the millionaire spout's going to get turned off or turned down. I, I, I work with people who feel powerless and, and, and play these ridiculous manipulative games with one another to try to get some control of a situation. A Christian writer by the name of Foster wrote a book called Money, Sex, and Power. He actually tracks them all back to power, the ultimate intoxicant, because that's what sex and money are really about. It's power. <clears throat> See, these are hard things. These are hard to listen to. 
It's hard to hear God say this. It's hard to hear Jesus say this. It's like, it's like Jesus had a lot of hard... In fact, there's a book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Worth a read. Because if you take it literally, you know, we find... <laughs> Listen to Americans discuss the rich young ruler. That's one of my favorites. Remember the rich young ruler? He came up to Jesus and he says, What must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, Keep the commandments, man. <laughs> I've done that since I was a knee-high to a grasshopper. Jesus said, okay, one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The hills of Judea echoed with the sound of that guy's chin hitting the ground. <laughs> And he went away sorrowfully. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. So how do we preach that today? <clears throat> well, he knew that's exactly what that young man needed. He wouldn't say that to us. I mean, he didn't say to everybody, did he? So he didn't really mean that. Probably if he'd said, okay, then Jesus would have come up with some theological version of Ali Ali Infri. Did he really mean that? He, he, he said, he said you want, you've got to despise your family to follow me. He didn't mean that. You've got to, he didn't really, he didn't really say that. You know how old that line is? Hey, Eve, he didn't really say you were going to die, did he? I, for one, am under conviction whenever I ponder these things. I'm, I'm, I'm this far from being crushed. But what keeps me from being crushed is the grace of God. A God who has a purpose for me that's beyond anything I'll ever do in this life. He has a vision for me that surpasses anything that I ever thought of myself. And he treats me as if I'm already there. He sees what I'll be and he treats me that way. As his chosen son. As an heir to the promise. As sinless. How does he do that? That's a mystery of grace. Grace is outrageous. It ain't fair. I don't want fair because that means I get what I deserve. And I don't want that. So, we're living among the Canaanites, we're surrounded by their idols. And if you're not actively knocking down those idols around you, the snare will always be there. And it threatens everything. Absolutely everything.
If this were the old days, I'd get the organist and pianist up here and we'd sing the song, Whiter Than Snow. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want you forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Ah, what love he has lavished upon us. He washes us with water in the word, preparing us to be presented to his father without spot or wrinkle for a marriage eternal in the heavenly places away from all of this. No snares there. No traps. No idols. It won't even be a temple because we'll be living in his very presence. That's what Revelation says. So it's all the new Jerusalem descending from the heavens. Oh man, that threatens when we all get to heaven. He's de descending from the heavens. And there was no temple there. For now, his dwelling is with us, among us. We got a taste of that. We got a down payment. A little security deposit called the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We spend a tremendous amount of time interfering and ignoring. But he's there. He's there. That's Jesus in you. Don't worry about the Trinity stuff. I don't understand that. I just know what the word says. Emmanuel, God with us. That makes me want to stop. Break down an idol or two. I need to throw away my mortar and trowel too because sometimes I build them again. Father, your word humbles me. Your law convicts me. <laughs> your love heals me. Your grace sustains me. And you save me from myself and the world and all the evil around me. Thank you. I submit myself to you. I repent. Turn my eyes to you. Only you are worthy of our praise. Only you are worthy of worship. Only you are worth everything. Only you gave everything. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.